Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm joined again by Katerina Kern and Alec Bianco to talk about Ovid's Metamorphosis. How are y'all today? Doing good. How are you? I am well, gearing up for the first rounds of travel for the conference season. So I think Alec and I both yeah, heading out to Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So this is when we get busy, everybody, <laughs> this time of year. At least this travel. We're always busy. This is the traveling time that's busy. Uh, While we are looking at our last set of stories that we're going to look at, uh, Syx and Halcyon or Alcyon, Kyx, I don't know, depending on how you pronounce it, in their their joint story. So we are learning uh, through this process that every edition of Ava's Metamorphosis breaks these stories up a little differently, um, sometimes with titles, sometimes without. So hopefully you are all able to to follow along with us, beginning with uh, Kyx kind of leaving for his journey and then um the the kind of metamorphosis for both of them um at the end so what uh what's any first thoughts from either one of you things that jumped out at you or struck you well i'll go first um i was just so struck by how this story really isn't driven by plot like most myths and most of the ones we've seen so far have been very plot driven and really the magic and the beauty and the emphasis in the story is not on the plot whatsoever. There's no, there's no sense of, of suspension, like, Oh no, what's going to happen. Um, it's all just looking at in great detail, the beauty of these things that they're, that's being described. So I was just so struck by how beautiful the descriptions were and how it, this is the first one where I've thought, wow, this is an author describing something he's lived through. And the other ones didn't feel that way to me. This one just felt so real and visceral and gripping, but not not because of the plot. And I, I really, I love stories like that. So I thought that this was really striking to me. I have to go back and read some of the other ones that we didn't get a chance to look at to see if, the, if this is a quality that's common for Ovid um, or if it's more particular to the story. I'm not sure, but yeah, just just very, very beautiful imagery. What what felt lived through to you the um like the the seafaring part within the storms or that that kind of stuff or was it something else? Yeah, really all of it. The description of the sea, the description, just the the small little lines that are so powerful. Like as he's drowning, he it says that he drinks water while speaking her name. Mm. It's this beautiful imagery that's describing things that we've all heard of a million times. Like we all have heard of someone drowning while you know, lamenting the loss of their life. We've seen this as such a common trope, but it's described in such a way that it's so vivid and so almost new, but, you know, it's obviously such an old story. It's just striking the way he's able to describe that. Mm. Alex, about you, Alec? Yeah, I mean, I was also struck by by that. And I um, I remember one time I was traveling from, Edinburgh, Scotland, back down to London. Um, and along the way, we stopped, my friends and I stopped at a small, you know, fishing village off the coast of Scotland. And you can see the sea. And then right there was a church and this very large graveyard. <clears throat> and I remember walking through that by myself, just reading the tombstones and who they were and it struck me how just tragic it is i mean i was these are people that were born you know three four hundred years ago and died at sea and it was their wives erecting these tombstones for their husbands lost at sea or their children who drowned at sea and so not to me really really sad <laughs> but this story is very sad and mm-hmm. this this description uh kind of reminded me of that um and and like you said katarina it's it's one of those stories that i it's it makes me uh, i wonder what ovid why ovid put put this story in here hmm. because I want I want to know what we're we're supposed to learn from this. Um, or is it really just an exercise in 
the description of the tragically beautiful. And if that's all it is, you know, it's amazing because it truly is just stunningly beautiful considering how horrifically tragic it is. I hadn't, I hadn't like thought or in, in words about how it's not very plot driven, Katarina, like you mentioned, but I mean, you say that and I'm like, instantly I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. That's, that's part of that feel of this one. Um, and then, and then that focus on this, the sea, it's really, it's, it's striking me listening to the two of you talk that it's, it's really a very intense, um, focus on the the kind of tumultuous sea right that's which was something that in ancient culture was pretty fearful place it's always represented kind of a, a chaotic place and it's but all of the action really centers on the on the sea like it all there's nothing else really for the whole thing and then alec you pointed out and one of the other stories i think it was last week's um for the first time kept noticing one of the more kind of Homeric type of um, similes. And this one had several in it, which in, in a fairly short span, which I thought was interesting too. It has more of those kind of epic descriptions uh, uh, in this contemplation. Yeah, there's something really striking about the description of the waves as like an attacking army mm-hmm. and the and the and the ship as the fortress or the city that the people are in. Mm-hmm. Oh man. It's just, it really shows that how helpless we are or, Oh man. And the description too, about the wall, the, the wave reaching so high as if it were part of the heavens, mm. it just, just outstanding. Like it's, it's incredible. The sea is, is extremely incredible because it's one of those few places on earth where the magnitude of it shows you how small we are and how right you know, viscerally weak we are in comparison to the to the nature of of the earth yeah and they, they draw your attention to that a couple of ways or he does it in several ways right obviously these similes and and, and then as she watches him leave, it gets smaller and smaller until the, the then it's out, he she cannot see it on the on the sea anymore. That's how far out he gets. And then where the storm happens, there it kind of says they're right in the middle. He can't see either shore. He can't see the shore he left or the shore he's heading to. And so there's it's so great that there you can't even see where you began and where you and where you're headed. Is I thought it was interesting too. Yeah, it's it's one of those stories. I I think you're right about it not being plot driven or I mean it has it has a semblance of a plot, but it's really just there's no or maybe I should phrase this as a question, but it doesn't seem to me like there's any particular action that should not have happened or particular good guy or bad guy. I mean, this is something that we all encounter on a daily basis. We say goodbye to our loved ones because they're mm-hmm. going to work or they're driving away for however, you know, and this is a possibility that could happen to any one of us, whether this is the last time you're saying goodbye to your loved ones. Um, and not that we should be afraid that, you know, our <laughs> friends and family are going to perish at sea every single day. Um, but it's it's certainly something that we deal with and people have dealt with. And this story, I don't know. Do you guys think that his treatment of this, his tragic telling, is is suitable to what happened? That's such a good question. And it's something that I'm wrestling with because I'm still trying to really piece out what happened. So maybe we can start there mm-hmm. um, because there's a couple things. There's two primary things I haven't really reconciled in the story. Maybe we can start with these. I'm sure there's other things that will come up. One of them is the the motif of light. And at the beginning, he swears to her when she begs him not to leave. And it it defines him at the beginning of this paragraph as the star-born husband, right? Mm -hmm. He's the son of Lucifer, the brightest star in the sky, except for the moon. And he says to her, Every delay will seem long to us indeed, but I swear to you by my father's light 
to return to you as long as the fates allow it before the moon has twice completed her circle. And then we see echoes of this light, especially when the tempest arises. Mm-hmm. It uses the darkness of the sea to describe just how dark this storm actually is. Mm-hmm. And uses it not just as a way of describing darkness, but as a way of saying that it's eclipsing the heavens. And I think the heavens are referencing far more than just the sky, of course. It's the sense of the eternal, the gods, those who are above watching, perhaps even the ideal um, and when the storm comes, there's a line that I'm trying to find that says that the darkness beneath touches the darkness above and the waters beneath touch the waters above everything. The sky becomes the sea. Everything is blurred together. Mm-hmm. It becomes one. And then it says that the stars cannot shine. Let me find the line. Yeah, that's right where I was too. Um, Lucifer was indistinct and not to be known that dawn. And since he was not allowed to leave the sky, he covered his face in dense cloud. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure the nature of, of Syx, whether he is meant to be of the light and now he's consumed by this sea that is darkness. So that's where I'm saying I'm not sure exactly what is happening, whether he should have not gone. She did, his wife did beg him three times not to go. Um, although I don't think that that's necessarily the question of this text, because you're you're right, Alec. I don't think that the author is questioning whether he's foolish. Mm-hmm. I think it's just stating that he did need to go. I mean, he was going to ask Apollo, the goddess of wisdom, for guidance. So it seems like he was doing what the, what he was meant to do as the son of of the of Lucifer, as the light, and maybe even as the masculine. Um, that going outward would be a part of his nature. So I'm not entirely sure there why Ovid keeps referencing the light and what he's doing here to talk about that. And then the other part that's intriguing to me that I'm really not sure what's happening is when when his wife, Alcione, becomes a bird, it says that she, and he basically, he describes it as a miracle. He's like, however she did it, you know, I, I, I don't have the text right here for that line. Mm-hmm. Um, she jumps into the waves and, and begins to fly. And this seems to be, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how she was able to, why that happened. Um, why it then says in the winter, when the water is calm, she nests on the water. Like what is symbolically happening here with her able to raise her children on the water? Um, something here with the light and the sea and the contrast between the two. It's as though this story is constantly pitting the heavens against the seas or the heights against the depths. And they are residing now as birds right between the two. They've like bridged Mm, the heavens and the deeps Um, or light and guidance versus the chaos and all consuming nature of the sea. There's, there's some relationship, some, some ladder perhaps that's being formed between the two of those. And I'm really not sure what it is. So maybe we can keep looking at this and see what's, what's happening here. Yeah, And the light and dark shows up again in, in the house of sleep, right? Because Jenison's Iris, who's, who's, um, rainbow right she's she's the messenger that's depicted with the with the rainbow which is which is light refracted but it's light and then sleep's realm is described as kind of hazy and dark and you know sleepy and she wakes him up with her brightness like her own brightness is what kind of startles him out of his kind of dozing and so it it, uh, it comes into play again this kind of light and darkness running into each other um or one consuming the other I guess in that case, it's hers interrupts the darkness, but but with with uh, Syx, it's it's his light maybe is consumed by the darkness in the in the tempestuous sea. There's like a reversal there in the in the house of the sleep. <laughs> Brandon, I think that's that's a good observation. I'm only I'm only pausing to interject because I see Alex's face looking very yes, he's awful. pensively he's pensively yeah. looking off into the middle distance. So yeah. So I, I'm I'm not going to respond to you. I'm going to let Alec. I'm I, um, I'm just sort of thinking. It's I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what y'all are saying and the connection. I was thinking of uh, Alcione and her 
uh, her father, Aeolus, the god of the winds. And then Kx is the son of the star. Mm-hmm. And so you have these heavenly elements of these two people born of heavenly elements who yeah. are dragged to sea, who are then changed into sea birds, mm-hmm. the creatures that exist between the sea and the heavens. Right. So it's it's like this was a part of their nature. They're intended to be. They're still maintaining their heavenly qualities, even while consumed by the sea. Yeah. It reminds me of the Orpheus and Eurydice story to some degree, at least in the sense that we're not, it's not like Kinneris and Mira, who are bad people. Um, (laughs) It's more like Orpheus and Eurydice, who are good people that Mm -hmm. bad things happen to. So it's a true tragedy in this sense. Mm -hmm. And just, as we're talking and listening, I'm trying to figure out what I, and this is probably a really big question. And I'd love to see some people put in some questions about this or some of their comments, because I don't, I, what is the purpose of a tragedy? That's what this story is making me ask. What is the purpose of a tragedy? Mm-hmm. What do we, what do we understand from, from this? And Ava treats it with kind of going back to what I was saying earlier. He treats it with this, extreme purple coloring of of the story right as everything is i mean like you said brandon he's he's got like six or seven homeric similes to describe this storm and even the house of sleep is this long drawn out i mean i'm reading it and being put to sleep because (laughs) it feels so lethargic yeah um so ovid is he he gives us this tragedy and then makes it as beautiful as possible why absolutely yeah yeah it's like he's telling this tale with adoration yeah when it, it, it um it's interesting the the bird that you know halcyon or is a is a it's a kingfisher it's in that family, like, like type, that type of bird. So it's a seabird that's, you know, a waterfowl that, but they're, they're bright and beautiful and striking to watch. Um, and so that adoration might be in there as well, right? That, that if you're going to give a mythological backstory to, to such a creature, there has to be something, some, some emotive power behind that versus something um well like like Alec pointed out with with the one where people are doing bad things, she ends up as something bitter. There's a redemptive quality to that, but the murtry is not quite so it's not the it's not the most striking, you know, it's not a massive oak or a what even a beautiful willow that maybe blows in the wind. It's something that's a little bit more rough and 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 um difficult and so he's giving this backstory to something that that's that attracts the eye that this type of bird I mean, if you ever watched a kingfishers move around it's like it's incredible to watch they're they're quick and they're skimming across the top of the water and they're flashes of color and um i don't know exactly which one this one is but it's in that family of of kingfisher type birds so I think, too, um, the last two paragraphs are where Ovid, I don't think he tells us, hey, this is why I'm telling the story. Um, But I do think that he gives us some hints and guidance as to how to read the story. Um, And I like that context of keeping in mind that he is describing this kingfisher, this very royal bird that's really beautiful and trying to trying to find an explanation for how that could be this almost transcendent creature on this earth. Mm -hmm. Um, But in these last two paragraphs, he describes the way the entire, not cosmos necessarily, but perhaps cosmos, certainly ecosystem is impacted by these two characters. And it's because of their love. And I, I know I keep coming back to that in all the different readings, 
But I think Ovid keeps coming back to that. I'm not like desperate for a love story. <laughs> um, but if we look at the last two paragraphs, if I could just start reading, I know it's kind of long, but I think it's all important. Um, the, the beginning of the second to the last paragraph, he says, a breakwater built by the waves broke the initial force of the sea and weakened the onrush of the tide. So we've seen this massive tempest that's described literally to such a degree that I thought to myself, I wish Shakespeare had used this imagery in the tempest. Like this is better yeah. than tempest. <laughs> um, so we've already got this massive description of the storm at sea, but this one sentence, a breakwater built by the waves broke the initial force of the sea and weakened the onrush of the tide. So we've found something that can weaken this force. And I don't know what the breakwater built by the waves. I'm assuming it's the water is now also taming the waters. Um, but then he says, though it was amazing that she could do so, she leapt onto it. So she's becoming part of the sea that has consumed her husband. She leapt onto it. She flew and beating the soft air on newfound wings, a sorrowing bird, she skimmed the surface of the waves. So her sorrow has given her the ability to soar in a way that she'd never been able to before until she faced that which consumed her husband. And literally, this is after she looks at him. So instead of fearing that her husband, I mean, she she knows he's dead. She's had the vision of her dead husband. She wishes death. She could just kill herself. But instead, she goes down to the seashore and she looks out there, sees his body come in and then faces it. I mean, she's staring into chaos just as much as he did when it describes the waves like it describes him from the depths looking up at heaven while he's in the depths because the sea has risen to such an extent that he's mm -hmm. almost near the sand at the bottom. She's doing the same thing now here. And as she's looking out into the sea and, and meets his body, as she flew, her plaintive voice came from a slender beak, like someone grieving and full of sorrows. When she reached the mute and bloodless corpse, so that contrast there between her, mm. her crying and the mute corpse is just stunning, of course. She clasped the dear limbs and her new wings and kissed the cold lips in vain with her hard beak. So his cold lips, her hard beak. People doubted whether Chiax felt this or merely seemed to raise his face by the movement of the waves, but he did feel it. So there's this resurrection here. And just similar to the pre previous story that we read that you mentioned earlier, Alec, that these are these good characters, but here's this echo to the resurrection that's incomplete. Um, he's able to feel her love. I mean, oh my goodness. And at last, through the gods' pity, both were changed to birds, the Halkions. Though they suffered the same fate, their love remained as well. So this is where I think, as I was reading it, I thought, okay, here, Auvert is telling us something about how to read the story. They suffered the same fate because they both looked into chaos and faced it and were consumed by it, but their love remained and their bonds were not weakened by their feathered forms. They mate and rear their young and Alcyon broods on her nest for seven calm days in the wintertime floating on the water's surface. So she's able to continue her love and to have children to bear children for seven calm days on the water's surface the water which consumed both her and her husband she now sits atop she's transcending it and giving life on it that which brought death is now giving life and then the waves are stilled so now they found well aeolus imprisoned the winds and forbids their roaming so even though she said to him hey don't trust aeolus to control the winds now he is mm -hmm. seven days consistently every single winter time the winds stop so that she can bring life on the surface of the water and so it's as though all of creation even the winds are standing in awe and respect of their love it would seem it's their love that's moving everything to be still and to let life come forth even out of death and even out of chaos yeah uh, that that breakwater those breakwaters are like um it's like a levee basically uh, or a uh, or a um storm wall if you've seen any like you've been on a coast where they have a storm wall and it's built out in the in the water or if you think about like the great uh, the um oh, what are the islands that are along the carolinas the uh i'm blanking on the name of them the outer banks um 
they they create calmer seas with between the outer banks and the mainland, right? Because they create a storm break, a natural storm break. And so these are built walls. Um, this is my experience growing up in, in Louisiana. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, that create calmer waters on one side. And so she runs out onto that and then leaps, to, but leaps toward the, the rough water where he's floating in from. But it says a breakwater built by the waves. So it, could there be a wave that would come in and, and exist? Oh, um, huh. Cause mine just says to the neighboring, another word for them is a mole. She strode that raised there to break the incursion of the flood. So I don't know if it was, um, Mine reads like it was raised by people, but if it's the waves, it could be that they, they, um, the larger waves have like piled up something that breaks mm-hmm. them. Um, mm-hmm. and so she dives off of that, but, but that's all just the image, the, the image, right? She, but it's in, it's as her, in her dive that she is transformed. By, mine reads, I think, by, like by the gods, but maybe I'm, maybe that's, maybe it's vaguer, um, how that happens. But, um, no, I guess it doesn't say that. It says he is by the gods, but. But yeah, that's she, like uh, Orpheus and, Eur- and Eurydice. Orpheus says, "I don't like either. Let me go down and get her, or just let me stay here. <laughs> let me take her with me. Let just let me stay here. I'd rather be in. I'd rather be here in Hades with her." And she says that at the beginning, "I'd rather go with you if you're going to go, so that whatever mm-hmm. fate falls you befalls me." Um, and then that's what happens here, right? She's willing. She's throwing herself off to be with him and but both are then resurrected instead. Um, That's actually really fascinating that she's constantly talking to him and bemoaning the fact that she wanted to make sure that they shared the same fate. Mm -hmm. And then he ends up getting to share her fate instead. Right. And, and this is really cool too. I mean, We'd have to read more of these stories. I don't know how many of this, how much of this happens, but I don't know. It is fascinating that she leaps up and she becomes the bird. Then the gods step in and turn him into a bird as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she becomes that. And then he gets to share that fate with her, Mm -hmm. which says something to me very powerful about Alcyone Mm -hmm. and who she is. Right. Well, and the birds get named for her, right? I mean, they're na- they're they share her name, not not his name. Mm. What do you think it is about her that makes her able? Is this the only story we've seen so far where she, of her own power, turns into something? Of the ones we've read so far, that's yeah. Every single other one, the mm-hmm. gods do it mm-hmm. originally. Not that the gods didn't do this necessarily, but the story doesn't tell us that. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't read so, that way. Yeah. At best, it's ambiguous, right? She leaps and she changes, right? So that's interesting. What do, What do you guys think is is making her so unique in this instance, or where where does her power lie, and what does her power lie? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, because it's not exactly this extremely plot driven story. We don't have a lot of actions necessarily by by the people. I mean, she prays so much to Juno that Juno gets annoyed and sends somebody to go <laughs> send a vision to her. So clearly she's a pious, pious lady. And she seems to indicate some pro- prophetic ability in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I I don't want to put too much stock into this because we're reading it in English and right. I'm not a Latin expert. But the word that is used very frequently in this story is miser, the Latin miser, miserable, miserabilis. Um, it's where we get our word miserable. Um, but it's also in in um, the Latin translations of the of the mass or the liturgy. It's where we get miserere nobis, have mercy on us. So we mm-hmm. say. Um, so it's that word is very interesting because it has so many different meanings and connotations. Mm-hmm. Um, it has connotations of miserable as in wretched or poor, but it also miserable in the sense of lovesick. 
And so that love sickness, that, that part of it, I think is absolutely, it is absolutely a part of the story. So I think you're right, Katarina, to, to bring attention to that. There's something about their love that is, is there. And I guess what my, what my mind is trying to untangle is the connection between tragedy and love between like, why does, why do both of those ideas exist in that word? And why is it applied to these characters? Or perhaps that's what this story is. Characters who bring those two concepts to life. Akione is love. Kayex is tragedy. And they bring them together. I don't know. Hmm. I do think it's important when Ovid says, I believe it's twice, that they are each other's other half. When she goes to her room to cry, it says the room in the bed provoked more tears and reminded her of her absent half. Mm -hmm. And there's another place where he's described as her other half. When I was reading this, I kept seeing the image of the yin and the yang. Yeah. Like they are, they are, it's, it's the heavens, it's the depths. It's, I mean, this whole story is full of duality and it's as though they're describing these two people who are together one whole. It's the, the positive and negative forces of the cosmos sort of colliding. Um, so I wonder if there's something to do with that, where their love is so complete and and they are so much one person that when she becomes a bird, he becomes a bird as a consequence. And there's this inseparable connection, perhaps through their, their suffering, they receive the mercy mm-hmm. because they are one. And it's hit her name. It's on his lips the whole time he's going down in his prayers that he's, that he's brought back so he can, so he can be buried with her at some point. They can share, a, a, what do you call it? blanking on the name for the, the tomb but um the word for the tomb but um it, it's interesting that it, it it appears to very much come from both sides you know we get very clearly that there's a deep love from both of them, for both of them for, for the other and they feel both feel incomplete without the other i think we don't see that in all stories there's maybe one pursuing someone one pursuing someone else more than 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 the other way around and sometimes that gets out of out of balance or it's in an inappropriate way I do want to keep thinking about this question you've asked, Alec, because I think it's fascinating, this relationship between mercy and their love, and whether that's just semantic coincidence, or whether it's something that Ovid is playing with. How much is that reflected possibly in in the space they end up inhabiting, right? That, that in-between space, it's between the depths and the heavens. You know the depths being the sea, not being just the sea, but being representative of of chaos and death and the things like that. And they they live in that; they're able to live in that in between, you know, kind of immortally, um, and literally kind of soar between the two. So, mm. right, because of their love, they're able to transcend that which no other human can. Right. That's that's the mercy. Right. That they. They can somewhat escape that 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 fate of the depths uh, that seems so inescapable, and as mm-hmm. Alec pointed out, takes so many sailors' lives <laughs> over the centuries. Right, like uh, the more you sail, the more you're tempting fate. Is kind of a kind of an ongoing idea. I think throughout history, um, it's such a high risk for so many. For it was such a high risk for such a, so long. It's one of those stories that <laughs> you don't. Need to think about it as much as you need to just compl- contemplate it. <laughs> yeah, you know, just be transformed by their beauty. I mean, I was thinking of the the scene when Morpheus, whose name means change, right? It's the name of this whole collection of stories. Morpheus comes to to Alcione in the in the image of her husband, and the description. I could almost see it in my mind, just this pale, naked man dripping with water standing over her. It's mm-hmm. horrifying mm-hmm. Um, and beautiful at the same time. 
like all of these images. I, I am I wrong? I mean, this is the story of all of the ones we've read where Ovid is he just went all out. Like it's oh, almost yes. it's almost baroque with mm-hmm. the amount of detail and stories that are given. And I'm not even sure they're necessary for the story. Like he's just giving us beauty. Yeah, the mental picture is so vivid with his with these lines. I'd be very curious to know if scholars think that this was written by someone else. This is just something I'm going to look up because it is Hmm. so different. It reads so differently. I'm not saying it is written by someone else, but I wonder if that's something that scholars debate. Yeah. I mean, we know that none of these, none of these stories are like original the way we would think of something being original now. You know what I mean? So maybe there was just a, uh, Maybe he was just borrowing from a greater wealth on this one too. Like there was other people had done parts of this description. Who knows? That's interesting though. I'd be I'd be that'd be a good one to thing to look up for for the yeah Q and A episode. Um, it is interesting that we are soon. We're not unfortunately not going to be able to talk about it, but soon we're going to get his treatment of Troy in the Trojan War. Mm. Um. In book 12. And I wonder if he's giving us this story now as a kind of descriptive way of preparing ourselves for the tragedy and horror of Troy for the Mm. Trojan people. Um, Because this reminds me very much of the first two books of the Aeneid. The... um, the storm that takes them off. And then of course, Aeneas's tale to his, to the people they meet and to his men about the fall of Troy Hmm. um, and being separated from his wife as the city's falling. And he's even talking about the ship as a city being besieged Mm -hmm. in the storm. Interesting. And yeah, yeah. It's just, it's really beautiful, especially for a Roman who've derived their their story and their history from from this from the tale of troy and to see this story kind of preparing you for that to really you know i was trying to remember where else where the the image of her trying to grasp morpheus as the shade or in in the dream what else that was reminding me of and you just you just mentioned it at least from virgil's and i haven't i haven't read the Ovid's Ovid's version of of the fall of Troy, but that's what happens when he reaches for that's what when Aeneas reaches for his wife, right? When she's when she appears to him after after dying, shortly after dying, and so it's a that that's what it was. I couldn't I couldn't put my finger on what I was what I was trying to remember, but that's it. That's the scene, and it's sad. It's like the saddest thing ever, right? To grasping through air um, for that loved one. I'm interested too, and in, I don't know if you have, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this, but. He gives us in the in the in the House of Sleep story, he gives us I, I remember reading it and thinking, why is he emphasizing so much that Morpheus is not her husband? He's merely appearing like him mm-hmm. and tricking her into oh, thinking right. that it's him. Mm-hmm. And if he had just said, and then Juno sent the messenger Morpheus to appear in the likeness of KX to Alcyone mm-hmm. to let her know, or you know, just left it like at that. I it would make sense to me. Like I wouldn't question anything. But he Ovid constantly made it clear that he wasn't really her husband. It was not, it was not the ghost of her husband appearing. And I'm I'm very curious about that. Why? Why? Why is Morpheus has to do it? Why couldn't it have been a ghost of him? And why emphasize the fact that he chained? It wasn't really his husband. It was Morpheus looking like him. Right. And it's not even she's asleep. Right. It's, it's in a dream. This is all a dream because then she wait awakes from it when she startles and the maids come running in. That is a interesting difference that. A messenger, there's not a messenger sent to to her. She could, Juno just could have sent a messenger to tell her, right? But 
um, she sends her a dream of of this. Um, and the other two, Morpheus is the one who can who can imitate man, right? And there's these other two kind of the ones good at doing beasts, and the other ones doing it imitating things in nature that have no that are soulless, you know, rocks and water and whatnot, which was interesting. So, the, I mean, does she send her a dream because? Because Sias's request is already being granted that he's going to he's going to be pushed back to his home shores, and so she'll she'll have the body where most people wouldn't. In a, when when people drown, is it just a she's tired of talking to her? She's tired of hearing it from her. You know, like you said, she's kind of pestering Juno. Um, why not her actual husband? Alec, maybe you could read some parts and explain to me why you say this because. When I was reading it, yes, I agree that it was obvious and Ovid was emphasizing that it wasn't her husband, that it was a shade of her husband, as mine, mine, mine uses the word shade. But the implication that I seem to get from the text, which maybe I'm totally wrong, was that that was the only way that anything could have come to her, that there wasn't, like that the shade is always just this, that there isn't a difference between the ghost of him and this shade of him like when i read it i was like oh okay so in ovid's cosmology ghosts do not leave the underworld they're always there and then any appearance of that person in this world is morpheus as a shade of that person interesting yeah that might be right um although it's interesting that people think that they are because he says (laughs) i am your husband's ghost and she believes that yeah well, she says it was a shadow, yet it was my husband's true shadow made manifest. True, he did not have his accustomed fe- features, if you ask me, nor did his face shine as before, but pallid and naked. I, the unfortunate one, saw him. Okay, so she, okay, okay. So she is convinced that it was the husband's true shadow. Right. Hmm, okay. I was thinking of that as it's someone truly replicating him. But that's silly now that I look at this. Your reading of it is correct. <laughs> yeah, it's just really, it's really interesting. Um, this whole encounter with the ghost who's not her husband, but a shadow of her husband, who is this master of change. Hmm. But he is, a, I, it, I, Brandon, it's interesting too, what you mentioned, that we have... It says, out of his thousand sons, his being sleep, that father rouses Morpheus, artful copier of forms. There's no one who more skillfully portrays the gait and face and speech of others, using for each the most familiar clothes and words. But he depicts just humans. There's another who mimic mm-hmm. beasts and birds and slender snakes. Gods call him Ecolos, humans Phobator. The third is Phantasos, his special artist turning into dirts or rocks or wa- waves or logs, whatever has no soul. These three appear to kings and leaders in the night, etc. Um, he adds that Ovid gives us that to tell us that there are three godlike beings who are masters of change. And then this one who's good at doing it for people comes to her. But then all of the gods can change and take on the forms of animals and people and then people change forms but when they change they change permanently i don't know it's just it'll probably be for our last week i think we should probably just talk about change change (laughs) yeah Yeah, in 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 the metamorphoses because we're seeing a lot of different kinds of change um and now in our last week being introduced to this Artful copier of change, <laughs> Morpheus, changer. I'm glad you brought this paragraph up because I wonder, I wonder if there's something in this that's important. Um, I mean, I, I know there is, <laughs> but if we look at the last few sentences in this paragraph, um, let's see where to start. So she's saying to her husband, to the shade of her husband. Um, I begged you not to leave me chasing the winds. 
which is interesting that she describes him as chasing the winds, which is what she does when she goes out to seek him. And she says, but for certain, I should have desired you to take me with you since you were going to your death. So I desire to go chase the winds with you. Mm-hmm. Again, what she does when she seeks him. How good it would have been to have gone with you, that no part of my life would have lacked your presence, nor would we be separated by death. And this is my favorite line. Now I have died absent from myself and am thrown through the waves absently, and the sea takes me without me. Hmm. So good, right? This idea that he is her and that she is dying. She feels that she has died, but yet she is alive and her body is not in the waters. It's not in the winds, but she knows that's where she actually is. So she has to unite herself to herself and return to the wind and the waves. But it's interesting that she says this right after Morpheus comes and speaks to her. And as she's saying, I wanted to be with you, perhaps there's this echo of her saying this to change. She's saying to change, take me with you. Hmm. And then she does indeed go become a part of the wind and the waves. Interesting. Maybe I'm reading too much into that context, though. I, I don't know. I mean, she's saying the word, she's saying the words to, to Syx, but it actually is going to to Morpheus. Um, so maybe at least it's it's a it's a foreshadowing, right? It's a it's a she's getting what she asked for without realizing what she's getting, what she's asking for mm-hmm. because she doesn't realize who she's talking to you. Yeah. Mine in mine, she, those lines about, she says no more Alcyon. She suffered death talking about herself. Like she, she feels at that moment that she's already died with, with, with Syx's death. Yeah. And, uh, and so she's, you know, it's just, and then they're, the transformation is their joint their joint um, uh, resurrection from that, from the sea. Man, this, it really is so beautiful and so tightly like framed. The whole story is, uh, I know you mentioned when we read uh, Orpheus and Eurydice and then Orpheus, the death of Orpheus, Katarina, that because they're separated in the story about some other things that are coming out of Orpheus's mouth, it's not always seen, but when you put those, just those two things together, it feels very chiastic. And this one kind of feels that way too. It feels like it's very just tightly, tightly woven, even with all that expressive description throughout the story. And and that, that, that's interesting to me though, that if she's, if she's, if she's addressing death, when she thinks she's addressing Syax, is she ultimately setting up, getting what, what she asked for, even though not in the way, not in the way she meant it. Right. But ultimately she gets it better, right? They get to be together, but not, not in Hades, they're good to be together in the air as as the Kingfishers of the Halcyon. Yeah, I wonder, is this, I'll have to look at more stories from the text, but I think this is one of the highest forms of metamorphoses. As far as what they transfer transform into? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which says something, I think, and again, I, I do need to read more stories to see what Ovid, if I'm going to make any statements about Ovid himself and what he's saying. Mm-hmm. But it seems interesting for Ovid's perception of man and yeah. man's relationship with the cosmos, that man could become a beast and it would be a higher form of being, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's... Of course, they didn't consider birds equal to animals that walked on the ground, so... Yeah, I was just thinking that as you said that, like we we have a hard time distinguishing between thinking like there's man, there's beast, right? And those are the those are the two categories. Um, but but the birds are the, are something other to them almost um, that you because they live in this space of above, of above the land, like in between us and the heavens. At least that's how I don't know, that's what it seems like. Um, you even get that in, uh, like, in the Void of Saint Brendan. There's the, the birds end up talking to them, and they they kind of represent these more spiritual beings almost um, in that story. And so that's much later. That's you know that's what medieval um, when that gets written down. And so that that that's interesting because most of these other transformations are into a beast or in something that doesn't move, like a tree or a stone, um, which would be lower. But this might be seen as something as something higher 
Hmm. And then obviously not having read the rest of the stories, it's hard to know. But so when I looked up, I wanted to make sure I knew what kind of bird the Halcyon was. And so when it took me to the you know King page about Kingfisher or whatever, the seven the days that when the when the water is calm, that she's that she's able to nest. That's the term. That's where the term Halcyon days comes from. Like I had no idea. Like that's the time when it's safe to be out on the sea. So that's where we get the idea of Halcyon days, which is how I, this is, that's how I knew that term growing up. I didn't know anything about the story or the kinds of, I didn't know kinds of birds as a kid, but I heard the word, the term Halcyon days. And that was, hmm. so it's, it's the time where cool. there's peace on the water. You can be on the water surface. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. When the untamable is tamed. Yeah. Yeah. The winds are held back. I just feel like there's so much more to explore with, with, the daughter of wind and the son of light, uh, I, I, you know, a son of a light God. And all that means for the space between heaven and, and, and earth or heaven and the seas, um, as the kind of place where those things, those things dwell and move and our experience, we can experience them, but, but not, not quite as concretely as, as the solid ground <laughs> or, or the water is interesting to me. So. You might have been right, Alec, that this is one of those ones you just have to keep contemplating. It's hard to it's hard to yeah. pin some things down. It's so beautiful. Every image conjures more, right. more thoughts and it's a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like we got a couple things we can look up on our own to bring to the QA next week. So that'll be fun. Um, we're starting to get a couple of questions coming in, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, and that will be how we wrap up. This this chunk of Ovid, maybe we'll have to we may have to revisit Ovid down the road with some more stories because it seems like there's a lot a lot more to to plumb there. So if you're out there listening, and you have questions, you can send them to us at at podcast at circeinstitute.org. We hope you will uh, about any any of the stories. Uh, we'll talk a little bit on that episode about the things we've been thinking about as we've continued to read through and compare some of the stories. Your questions. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about what's going to be coming up next. Hopefully, we'll be able to re- kind of announce several books uh, in a row so people can start planning for those. So, well, Alec, Katarina, thank you again for joining me this week. Thank you. Y'all have a good one. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode on Audit. We'll see you next week. <laughs>